0: As for the program today, Sites and Stories, uh, African American History in Virginia, Uh, this is an exhibition that is upstairs right at the foot of the two staircases that lead off the uh, front lobby where you entered, and Sites and Stories is an exhibit that was conceived and executed by our curator of African American history, Laurinette Lee. Tell you a little bit about Laurinette, we have uh, known each other now for quite some time, She was, uh, when I first knew her, she was uh, doing research for Dr. Edgar Toppin from Virginia State University. She was enrolled in the master's program there at Virginia State. Dr. Toppin was on our board here at the Virginia Historical Society for a number of years. And it was through uh, the contact with Dr. Toppin that Laurinette was hired here at the Society as far back as 1992 to be the first uh, Philip Morris intern. Uh, and she worked with me on an exhibit uh, of which I remain very proud to this day called Bound Away, Virginia and the Westward Movement. Then uh, Laurenette went off and she was teaching uh, at Old Dominion University. Uh, she got her PhD in history from the University of Virginia in 2002. Beginning in 2001, She came to work here at the Virginia Historical Society as our first, our founding curator of African American history. And in the intervening years, she's organized exhibitions on quite a number of diverse topics, Uh, reading the word, the church, and African American education, then one about uh, African Americans on Virginia's presidential plantations. Then, A Dream Deferred, World War II and the Black Experience. Then, for the uh, 50th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education decision, the Civil Rights Movement in Virginia, which, after it was here at the Society, traveled to a number of other museums. Then, Children of Hope, African American Childhood in Virginia, Safely Harbored, New African American Acquisitions, And then most recently, looking back, the Jamestown Negro Exhibit of 1907, which was part of our complement of exhibitions that we had for the 2007 400th anniversary of Jamestown. And now our latest exhibit, uh, Sites and Stories, African American History in Virginia. And so please join me in welcoming Laurenette Lee.
1: Thank you for coming. I am one lucky lady to have you all here on Valentine's Day and to share this time with me. Thank you so very much. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to speak about this latest exhibit. It just opened on February 2nd, and it came about because of a partnership between the Virginia Historical Society and the Department of Historic Resources. Um, The department approached us about collaborating on a diversity initiative regarding the historic highway markers. Um, And these historic landmarks chronicle the culture and history of an area and provide communities with a sense of identity and stability. The historic highway marker program in Virginia is the oldest in the country, having begun in 1922. The first marker was erected in 1927. And since that time, there are markers in every locality in Virginia. Beginning in 2004, the Virginia Historical Society began this partnership with the Department of Historic Resources to focus on African American, American Indians, and women. This exhibit focuses on African American markers. The first uh, marker that we really wanted to bring to your attention is about the first Africans in Virginia. Now whether the first Africans were treated as indentured servants or as slaves is uncertain. We do know that the first ones to arrive were in a group of 20 and two of their names were Anthony and Isabella. They had a son in 1623 and they named him William. Um, And they named him after their employer, William Tucker, who also baptized the child in the local church of England. The infant William is recognized as the first child of African descent born in English America. He was almost certainly born free. The institution of slavery evolved during the 17th century as the term of service for Africans was extended to life. We've included a reproduction of the 1619 census as well. During the following years, a few other persons of African descent arrived in the expanding colony of Virginia. By 1625, 23 black people lived in the colony, compared to a combined total of 1,275 whites and Indians, By 1649, the total Virginia population of about 18,500 included only 300 black people. Now, we know that um, because of the institution of slavery, there was always this conflict in American society. Um, In the spring of 1774... Uh, Lord Dunmore had threatened to emancipate slaves if the American rebels harmed any senior British official or raised troops against the royal governor. In response, some slaves fled toward the royal governor's residence to offer their service. In November 1775, Lord Dunmore issued his famous proclamation calling for enslaved people and servants to fight on behalf of loyal forces in exchange for their freedom. A few hundred people managed to join Dunmore and help form his Ethiopian regiment, and in our exhibit, we've used a reproduction frock. The event set a precedent. On December 9, 1775, Lord Dunmore attacked the 2nd Virginia Regiment over the Great Bridge, located on the southern branch of the Elizabeth River. The colonial forces commanded by by Colonel William Woodford defeated Dunmore's troops' detachment. This was the first pitched battle of the American Revolution in Virginia. Enslaved Americans in Virginia and elsewhere began to think of the British as a refuge. Consequently, hundreds, some estimate at least 800 slaves, succeeded in reaching the British in response to Dunmore's proclamation. And we know that women and children were included in that number. James Lafayette was one who was born in slavery in New Kent County, His master, William Armstead, was commissary of military supplies when in the summer of 1781, the Marquis de Lafayette recruited James as a spy. James posed as a double agent, forager and servant at British headquarters. He moved freely between the lines with vital information on British troop movements for Lafayette. The Virginia General Assembly freed James in
0: 1787. You one
1: Thank you. Thank you. The Virginia General Assembly freed James in 1787 in recognition of his bravery and service on the written recommendation of Lafayette, whose name he took for his own and we've used an original in the exhibit. Now, when we think about the conflict that ensued because of having this institution of slavery within a free society, we have to recognize that rebellions and insurrections were a part of the environment. Gabriel, a slave owned by Thomas Henry Prosser of Henrico County, intended to march into Richmond, and kidnap Governor James Monroe, force him and other leaders to support political, social, and economic equality. The insurrection was planned for August 30, 1800, but heavy rain delayed the scheme. Mosby Shepherd of Henrico County notified Monroe of the conspiracy after his slaves, Tom and Farrow, made him aware of the plot. Monroe called out the militia who captured many of the le- alleged conspirators, Gabriel was hanged on October 10, 1800, the last of 26 conspirators executed. Thirty one years later, Nat Turner began an insurrection against slavery in Southampton County. On the night of August 21st and 22nd, 1831, Nat Turner and about 70 others killed at least 60 whites as they moved northeast toward the Southampton County seat of Jerusalem, which is now Cortland. Militia men and armed civilians quelled the revolt after two days. Turner was captured on October 30th, tried and convicted, and hanged on November 11th. At least 30 other blacks were also hanged or expelled from Virginia. In response to the revolt, The General Assembly passed harsher slave laws and censored abolitionists. Gilbert Hunt, one of the heroes of the early 18th century, was born enslaved. He was a blacksmith. He had saved several people when the Richmond Theater burned in 1811. The monumental church, which now stands on that site, is a memorial to the 72 people, including Virginia Governor George W. Smith, who died in the fire. After Hunt purchased his freedom, he moved to Liberia because he could not tolerate the institution of slavery. He soon returned from Liberia, however, because of the climate. Back in Virginia, he established several successful businesses. We've used an original in our exhibit, and from this original, you could tell that he did have some economic standing. Lot Carey also moved to Liberia. He was born in 1780. He was hired out by his owner to a Richmond tobacco firm. Carey joined the First Baptist Church in 1807. When he purchased his freedom, he became a Baptist minister in 1813. He then founded the American Missionary Society in 1815 and moved to Liberia in 1821. There, he established Providence Baptist Church in Monrovia, Liberia, as well as several schools. As a political and military leader, Carey helped Liberia survive as a colony of free American blacks, He died there in November 1828. Throughout this time, African Americans continued to struggle for their freedom. With the Civil War, we began to learn more of their contributions. I want to thank my supervisor, Jim Kelly, for his help in this particular area of the exhibit. I am not a Civil War enthusiast, and he helped... You wonder why... (laughs) He helped considerably in showing me the different um, artifacts that we have in our collection and bringing out stories that I had not heard of before. Um, What we're looking at here is a reenactment that occurs at Fort Pocahontas in May of every year. On a bluff overlooking the James River stands the half-mile-long Fort Pocahontas, It was built in the spring of 1864 by Union soldiers during the Civil War. The fort protected Union vessels on the river and guarded the landing at Wilson's Wharf. Commanded by General Edward A. Wilde and manned by the 1st and 10th regiments of United States Colored Troops and two guns of Battery M, 3rd New York Light Artillery, the 1,500-man garrison beat back assaults by 2,500 cavalrymen under Confederate Major General Fitzhugh Lee on May 24, 1864. It was the only Civil War battle in Virginia in which nearly all the Union troops were black. Fort Monroe, located in the Tidewater area, is an area that's undergoing change as we speak. It's now an Army installation base that will be closing. In 1861, Union General Benjamin F. Butler, commanded Fort Monroe, decided to treat escaped slaves as contraband of war, material of use to the enemy, and therefore forfeited under the rules of war. Some of the first to arrive at Fort Monroe and considered contraband were Thompson Walker, George Scott, William Davis, Shepard Mallory, and Frank Baker, Soon after, Fort Monroe became known as Fortress Monroe and Freedom's Fort. When we think about the, the influence and impact of the church, one to consider is John Jasper. Born into slavery in Fluvanna County on July 4, 1812, John Jasper became one of the best known black preachers of the 19th century in Virginia. After working in a tobacco factory, Jasper had a religious awakening in the early and the later 1830s. He then became a preacher. Self-educated, Jasper was renowned for his oratorical style and for his sermon, The Sun Do Move, first delivered in 1878. Jasper delivered the sermon more than 250 times and at least once to the Virginia General Assembly. He organized the Six Mount Zion Baptist Church in 1867 and died late March 1901. The church still thrives and graciously gifted us with a pew from its sanctuary. Schools also played an important part in the, the opportunity to enjoy freedom on a fuller level. Here we're looking at a class at Virginia State University. And at Virginia State, many of the students were from the rural areas, but they made every effort to get an education as best they can. This class is noted as the last class because it was the last class under the name of Virginia Normal and Collegiate Institute. The name changed in 1902 Um, to Virginia Normal and Industrial Institute when the Virginia legislator wanted the school to concentrate more on industrial um, occupations. James Mercer Langston was the first president of Virginia State University. Born on December 14, 1829, to the son of plantation owner Ralph Quarles and his former slave Lucy Langston, John later became a graduate of Oberlin College in 1849. In 1855, he became township clerk of Brownland, Ohio, the first African-American popularly elected to office. During the Civil War, he recruited regiments for the Union Army. Afterward, he was a founder and first dean of the law department of Howard University. He served as minister resident in Haiti and charged affairs in Santo Domingo, and was first president of what is now Virginia State University in 1888. He became also the first congressman elected from Virginia. He died on November 15, 1897, in Washington, D.C. Christiansburg Institute was founded at a time immediately after the Civil War in 1866, 1866. Captain Charles S. Schaefer was a Freedmen's Bureau agent who organized the School for Blacks in Montgomery County. Charles Marshall of Tuskegee Institute became the principal of the school in 1896, and it was under his guidance and with support from Philadelphia Quakers and Booker T. Washington that a library, dormitories, classrooms, shops, and barns were constructed. Both academic and industrial classes were offered at the Institute until 1947, when it became a public high school. In 1966, the Institute graduated its last class, and its property was sold at public auction. Carter Godwin Woodson is known as the father of African American history. Born on December 19th in 1875 in Buckingham County, Carter Woodson mined coal near Huntington, West Virginia. He earned degrees at Berea College in 1903, University of Chicago in 1908, and a Ph.D. from Harvard in 1912. He was one of the first blacks awarded a doctorate by Harvard. In 1915, he organized the Association for the Study of Afro-American Life and History. And in 1916, he established the Journal of Negro History. Known as the father of African-American history, Woodson founded Negro History Week in 1926. Since 1976, we have celebrated African-American History Month. And it was under Dr. Edgar Toppin's tenure as president of the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History that we are now celebrating African-American history as a month. Woodson died in Washington, D.C. on April 3, 1950. When we move into the 20th century, one of the leaders of the Civil Rights Movement was James Leonard Farmer, and we're using an original lithograph from our collection. Born on January 12, 1920 in Texas, James Farmer became Very important in the civil rights struggle. In 1942, he and other civil rights leaders founded the Congress of Racial Equality, which was known as CORE. Under Farmer's leadership in the spring of 61, CORE organized Freedom Rides to desegregate interstate transportation in the Deep South. Farmer was an assistant secretary in the United States Department of Health, Education, and Welfare from 69 until 70. He also taught at Mary Washington College, which is now the University of Mary Washington. In 1998, a year before he died, he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And John Jackson, a famous Piedmont blues guitarist, recently died in 2002, but was well known for a particular style of music, Um, that we think of as finger-picking. He was born on February 25, 1924. He was the seventh son of tenant farmers Sudie and Hattie Jackson in Woodville, Rappahannock County. During his lifetime, he worked as a farmer, butler, chauffeur, grave digger, humanitarian, and musician. He helped his parents raise 13 siblings as well as his own family. In 1950, at the age of 25, John, his wife, and children moved to Fairfax, Virginia. He first took a job on a dairy farm and built a house with his own hands, working evenings and weekends. Jackson took a break from playing music and began working as a caretaker, cook, and chauffeur. To augment his income, he also became a grave digger, and by the 1960s, he had created his own grave digging business, which he operated with his son and he believed very strongly that every man was entitled to his six feet. In 1964, the owner of a Fairfax Amoco gas station, who was a banjo player himself, asked John to come over for a jam session. Chuck Purdue also stopped by to fill his tank with gas and noticed John, and Chuck Perdue is a folklorist at the University of Virginia. Purdue asked if John could play, and John replied, I only know a couple of chords and I can't sing at all. The word soon spread, however, that indeed he could play and he could sing. And he was invited to play for local coffee houses and concerts. During the 60s, a broad interest in roots music was developing, particularly among young East and West Coast college students. The blues appealed to Europeans as well as those who were keen to play their own version of the blues. The result was the soon-to-come so-called British invasion of rock and roll from England. The Rolling Stones especially took notice and fashioned their version of the blues. And you can hear some of the blues in their songs, particularly things like I Can't Get No Satisfaction, I'm a Rocker. A favorite of President and Mrs. Jimmy Carter, John Jackson performed a memorable concert for them on the White House lawn. He was the bluesman on tour of Southern Music USA, a globe-trotting event that set a record for international touring, 47,000 miles in eight weeks. He also performed for the royal family in Thailand and in many of the great halls in Europe and North and South America. In 1986, the National Endowment of the Arts gave John its National Heritage Fellowship, a Living Treasure Award, the highest honor the nation offers a traditional artist. His style, known as Piedmont Blues, is influenced by ragtime, country, string bands, and popular songs of the early 20th century. It is a blending of both black and white, rural and urban song elements. The alternating thumb bass pattern and finger-picking style of Piedmont Blues guitar is reminiscent of West African chora playing and earlier banjo styles, also of African origin. And so when we look back on all that African Americans have contrib- contributed to American society, we realize that it is indeed a blending of both African, European, Native American to create an African American culture. And it is still seen in things such as music, culinary skills, the clothing, the language, and many other cultural attributes. And when we think about all that we have seen In this particular exhibit, we realize that there is so much more to discover, and we hope that you will join us in that quest. Thank you.